David Hodge is an artist who takes creative inspiration for his work from his life. He spent 25 years as the Queen of Soho. Legendary drag artist Dusty O has hosted many iconic London club nights, DJed all over the world and been a star on the West End stage and screen. You name it, he did it in a huge wig and couture designer outfit. Here, David talks about each decade of his extraordinary life, the highs and the lows. This is David Hodge, the boy who sat by the window. Hello, David. Hello, darling. <laughs> how are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Let's roll then. Well, <laughs> this week we're going to talk about David Hodge in the 70s, oh, aren't we? Mini me. So we're going to look back at your life in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So we may as well start at the very beginning. Just tell us all about the family setup. Well, there was uh, five in our family setup, six at times. My mum, my dad, Jean and Clive, and I have two sisters, Julie and Karen. And my nan was a very... Um, around a lot during those times. I was born in a little town just north of Birmingham called Warsaw, just outside Warsaw actually, um, in a it's prettier suburb, Aldridge, which is kind of a little twee middle class place. Um, kids go to ballet school on a Saturday morning and, you know, horse riding if you're lucky. So it wasn't particularly working class, but we were very working class. Both my parents' families were... Um, from, I suppose, what we could call now ghettos almost, the really rough and, and down to brass tacks type places that um, are quite common in the Midlands. It's a very industrial place, as you know. And my dad had done quite well. He'd set up his own business. He had done very well with it. It was a tiling business. Quite early on, when I was about two, I think, we moved to a much larger house. It was a big 11-bedroom farmhouse in the countryside, just outside Aldridge. And it was beautiful, you know, got our own horses, animals, you name it, it was beautiful, absolutely stunning. But unfortunately, my father got quite heavily um, involved in doing the local sort of hunting, shooting and fishing brigade and spent more time with that than he should probably have done on his business. And the family history says that there was a, a crooked um, partner. I don't know how true that is, um, but that's that's what the demise of the business was always blamed on. But my dad did start at that point heavily drinking, and it was started a, a long, um, a long illness, I suppose, that lasted his entire life, where he was fighting his demons. And after the farmhouse, we. Dad had gone bankrupt. Can you remember the farmhouse? Yeah, yeah. And living yeah, there? Yeah, I remember clearly. With all the animals? Yeah. I remember living at the farmhouse clearly. It was a, a beautiful existence. Even though I was very small, I was three or four. But I've got very distinct memories of it, riding around the um, stable yards in my little go-kart. And I'd got my own Shetland pony that it was planned that I'd learn to ride on. 
Unfortunately, things didn't go sort of to plan. So the Shetland pony, along with the other horses and my dad's race horse, which was called No Name, were taken away by the uh, debt collectors. And I remember that morning quite clearly as well, because my mother was scuttling around, hiding all the Dalton and, you know, the more valuable pieces of China and things like that, putting it out in the stables because they came and basically stripped our house of everything. It's a very sad day. But three or four, you don't really, you know, that, that emotion. I remember it feeling sad, but I didn't feel particularly sad because you don't when you're three or four. It's an adventure, isn't it? It's like, oh, look at the big lorries taking all our furniture away. <laughs> surely so, lo- losing a Shetland pony. I was too young to care, really. I didn't really like that Shetland pony. I, I didn't <laughs> Even at that age, sort of... um, You're pointing out you can take him as well. (laughs) (laughs) I was more upset about us leaving the ducks, to be honest, because um, my dad had come home a few weeks before all this happened with a hundred little ducklings and he put them in one of the stables and the plan was to rear them as you do in the country and then eventually, I suppose, knock them on the head and eat eat them. (laughs) But... um, I didn't know. Obviously, I was a small child. The ducklings were poor and it was nice, stable, straw and everything for them. And I I felt sorry for them because there was no water because you associate ducks with water even at that age. So I dragged a hose pipe over and filled the stable with water, basically, which drowned half the ducks (laughs) because they don't have they don't have um, water resistant feathers at that age, apparently, unless they get it off their mom. So little, those little yellow fluffy ducklings. Yeah, so I, I, I did manage to murder about 50 ducklings <laughs> at the age of four. But the others grew and I remember being quite upset about having to leave my ducks. But that was about it, really. And we went from there back to living with my nan in a two up, two down terrace property in quite a sad area of Warsaw, really. Very industrial, very grimy. There was no central heating, it was coal fire, it was freezing cold. And there was all of us in there, including three dogs. So it wasn't particularly a happy time. No, and that must have been shocking for your mum. It was a massive shock to my mum's system, really, because she'd gone from nothing to having quite a lot. You know, all the financial sort of worries had gone to suddenly having everything back on a plate again. And she was working, cleaning in an old people's home. And my dad was too ill to work. You know, he'd had a nervous breakdown, massive nervous breakdown. And that lasted a few months. And gradually, he did pick himself up, got a job. And I think between them, they managed to scrabble together enough money for us to rent a place, to rent our own place. And they rented a little house in Aldridge, which is, as I say, quite middle class, quite pretty, and where they'd originally sort of decamped when they'd first got some money. So, yeah, we rented this little house. It was a nice house, but they were hard years because my dad's alcohol problems were very prevalent. There was constant rows in our house. I never, it sounds awful. Most people remember their youth, their childhood with sort of rose tinted spectacles. I don't really remember my youth like that. I remember my childhood as being full of arguments, my parents arguing, problems with my eldest sister. I remember the screaming and the shouting and we were never hidden from it. Like some parents would 
you know, keep a lot from their children. Everything in our family was on view for the world to see. So we were always, even as children, very aware of what was going on, very aware that there was no money, blah, blah, blah. And because it was sort of a quite a well-heeled area, all our friends' families, you know, were sort of better off than us. And I think we were kind of like looked down on a little bit in the local vicinity as being sort of like the, the poor family, you know. I remember hearing a story that my sister told my mother when I was quite young, six or seven, that she'd been to have her tea with uh, her friends around the corner. And the younger brother had said, why is she here? Her family's common. <laughs> and um, I still remember that. And I always, I always, I think I took that with me, you know. As you do, you take things from your childhood and keep them your whole life. And and for me, when I did have my own money um, later on in life, it was always spent on things that were very sort of like flashy and visibly showy. Like showy. You wanted people to yeah, know, to, yes. That I'm not that person anymore. I suppose subconsciously that's what I was saying. But yes, it was a very difficult childhood, very early, those early years. I remember it, just the constant arguments really and, my mum and dad had no filter. My mum's still alive. She still has no filter. <laughs> um, but they had no filter together. And they loved each other passionately, but couldn't stand each other as well. So it was kind of very um, combustible atmosphere in our house as a child. Wow. And what about school then? Did you have to change schools? Um, the f- I didn't, but my sisters did. My sisters, because they're older than me, four years and eight years older than me. Um, for me, I... The first nursery school I went to, um, I, was, I was kept at. And then when I went to the little school, it was the only little school I ever went to. So, And it was because it was Aldridge's near enough to Litchfield, I could do the two things. That was, school was never very, very happy, to be honest, either. Um, I'd been fairly cosseted, I suppose. We hadn't had many friends. When we lived in the countryside, there were like literally no kids around. So it was very much, I lived in my own little world. And our family was very sort of matriarchal. The women ruled our family and my dad didn't really have much say, saying much. My early years were spent with my nan and my mom and my elder sisters. And, you know, so, and I was spoiled. I was quite spoiled. So it was quite difficult to adjust being like in a mixed environment where you weren't the centre of everyone's attention and got your own way all the time. And I hated it. I hated school. I was quite, you know, right from day one, my early years. I remember my first day at school, I bit the teacher that would try, try to take me into the, <laughs> into the classroom. And uh, I don't think she ever liked me after that, to be honest. Teachers were so... To be so- fair, you, you really wouldn't like the student who tries to bite you. <laughs> I can remember my mum telling me that I, she took me the first day and the second day. She was called because I was climb, trying to climb over the, to the escape. gates to escape. Yeah. Because I was the same. I thought, oh, you have to do this every day. Oh, it was, came as a massive shock to knowing that you have to do it every day and mix with all those horrible children that you didn't particularly like. And even at that age, I was sort of, my personality was strong enough to be noticed by the other kids. In what sort of way? What? Well, I was, I've always been very sort of um, expressive in everything really and how I act how I speak how I word things Kids, would you say you were assertive though if, if, um, if somebody upset you would you tell them that they'd upset you at that age probably not that came a little bit later I became very good at that later on 
I remember people, kid, other kids calling me poof and things like that from literally the age of six, five or six. And I always was made to feel that I was not like them, you know. I always, and I, I didn't particularly feel, I don't think like them anyway, but. And what did you think that meant? I didn't know what it was meant, what it meant actually. The first time it ever really hit home to me, I still have a memory of this, was in hymn practice and we were all sitting on the floor in the hall. And um, I went and sat down next to some little kid. I can't remember who he was. And he got up and moved. He said, I'm not sitting by you. My brother says you're a puff. And so I didn't know what that was. You know, he's five, six. It's like, what? (laughs) But I soon got used to that name as I was called it so often throughout my life, especially at school. Um, But yes, uh, it was something that I got used to fairly quickly. But immediately it segregates you. From the other kids, doesn't it? You feel so. This is still the seventies. Representation on TV was not good. No, it wasn't good at all. Really, I mean, sort of homosexuality itself had only been legalised in nineteen sixty-seven, which was the year I was born. So it had only had like a few years to settle in. Yeah, people still saw it as being dirty, a perversion, um, something or something to be ridiculed. Something to be ridiculed. Everything. All the examples of gay people on the television. There was no real positive examples. There were some funny ones like Larry Grayson, John Inman, Frankie Howard, you know, but that's not really particularly positive. Not everyone is John Inman, not everyone is Frankie Howard. Um, And Frankie Howard was in the closet anyway, so. And Larry Grayson, of course, that was another nickname that I had at school was Larry. (laughs) And so all the associations that people had with anything gay or queer or whatever were negative, really, or things to be ridiculed, laughed at. And did you talk to your parents about how you were treated at school? No, not really. Or your sisters? No. Anybody? No, not really. I don't think most gay children do. I think they just bottle it up. Because you, you, haven't, you don't really know what it is. You haven't accepted it because you don't know what it is. Especially, you know, prepubescent kids. They're just, you just feel alienated you just feel separate and bullied and you know unfortunately I I sort of withdrew into myself so much that I kind of inhabited a little imaginary world of how I wanted things to be because things were very bad at home you know with my dad's alcoholism and constant lack of money and him changing jobs and oh there was always some drama going on so it wasn't particularly a happy home it was a safe environment but it wasn't particularly happy and then at school, you go to school and, I'd, and like many other little gay kids, you know, all over the world, then you picked on at school. And unfortunately, I didn't have a very nice teacher who immediately also, you know, sort of singled me out really for ridicule. And because I lived in this like little fantasy world, I quite naively told this teacher one day that... um I'd watched a film called Born Free about Elsa and the Lions. Remember that? Oh, well, we loved Born Free. Big film in the yes, 70s. Everyone huge. was. I got it into my head that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go and live in Africa. And my dad was going to be um, a ranger. And mom was going to like stay at home in the lovely big African house. And we'd have animals and blah, blah, blah. And it was all totally imaginary. But bear in mind, I was like seven. So it wasn't, you know, vindictive in any way. And I 
told the teacher this story. Oh, we're going to do this. And she saw my mother a couple of days later and she said, oh, Mrs. Hodge, I hear you're going to live in Kenya. And da, 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 da. And of course it was all rubbish. And my mum, being my mum, said, oh, it's total rubbish. It's always living in this, lives in his head. And um, so the next day when I was at school, she literally hauled me up in front of everybody. What proceeded was like 10 minutes of humiliation where she told this story and then ended it with being, well, of course, that's all rubbish, isn't it, David? David Hodge is a liar. He's a fantasist. He's this and that. And I remember that very clearly. I remember absolutely clearly her saying, David Hodge, you're a little liar. And I was sat then sat on my own by the window, which is why podcast is called The Boy Who Sat By The Window and my book as well. For the next two years, I was even more isolated from the other kids because I was sitting alone by the window. Obviously, what results in that is you don't get invited to parties and things like that because you haven't formed strong enough social networks. And it was, you know, it was very sort of, very isolating, really. And it set the tone for my school days until I was about 12, really. So you learned to cope just sitting on your own? Pretty much, pretty much, yeah. And terrible to think that that was orchestrated by a teacher. And those things were allowed, though, in the 70s, weren't they? I mean, I remember our deputy head, horrible woman, hitting kids with her shoe. She'd take her shoe off and hit them and literally assault some of the children. Never got in any trouble for it. Nowadays, of course, it wouldn't be like that. Mm. And even at that early age now, children are educated and encouraged to learn about different cultures, different ways of life and things. But in those days, it was nothing. There wasn't one black or Asian person in my school of about 800 kids. It was entirely sort of heterogeneous little white kids um, and little middle class kids as well, which kind of made it even worse because aspirational. Um, And do you remember making any friendships? I had a couple of friendships with girls. Um, I had a friend called Sharon who we used to play, I used to play horses with. But at primary infant school and um, junior school, no, not really. I didn't have any friends as such. I had my sisters at home. Well, my one sister, my other sister, not so much. And a couple of kids down the road, really, who I'd sometimes play with. But no, I would always play alone, really, or with my cousins. What was your relationship like with your sisters? Well, the sister that's four years older than me, I'm very close with her, still am. Because of all everything that was going on in the family, me and her sort of clung together, really. So we were each other's comfort blanket. My other sister, who's eight years older than me, she, I think, in a way, the ups and downs of our family life and, and sort of having money, not having money and going, you know, she, she'd gone from a private school to a state school. She'd gone from having her own ponies to having nothing. Um, you know, there's this constant family feuds going on within the family. And I think it had a very bad effect on her. She disassociated herself even at that age from us as a family, I think. And she's went on later, many years later, to disassociate herself completely from us. But, and it, you know, that was her choice as well. So, yeah, I think it did 
have mentally have a bad effect on her. She got in trouble with the police. I remember there was incidents where, because she's, as I say, she was eight years older than me, she would take the car and drive around and oh, all sorts of things. So there were, that added to the, the madness of the house, and really. The, the, the tensions. Shouting, the tension and the screaming. I remember her stabbing my mum's beautiful maple table with a big knife and her, oh, there was always something, always something. She was quite, quite disturbed, I think, really. She didn't have a, I, I, n- virtually no contact with me, really. The first memory I ever have of, of my eldest sister was when we were staying at my nan's when I was very, very you know, tiny. I was five, probably. And um, we all used to have to have the same bath water because that's how it was. <laughs> there wasn't enough money to, for us all to have our own bath. There were five of us in our bath, let me tell you. <laughs> well, you know how it is then. I know exactly. You always wanted to be near the taps. Yeah. Because it was it hot was hotter, near the taps, yeah. yeah. And I remember being in the bath and it was my turn, you know. And my mum had left me in there just for a few minutes. I think she'd gone to get a towel or something. And my eldest sister was wanting to get into the water and I was going, wouldn't get out until my mum came with a towel. And she stood over me and weed on me and urinated on me. <laughs> and it kind of set the tone for our relationship, really. Um, because that's pretty much how I've felt ever since. But, <laughs> but that, what an awful first memory of your eldest sister, you know. And later on, there was never any pleasant memories. I can't ever remember going anywhere nice or having happy families or games or anything with my, that sister. With the other sister, yes, but um, not, with, not with Karen, unfortunately. I think the damage had been done by that point. She'd obviously seen a lot, though. She had, yeah. With she the family had, yeah. and especially those huge swing changes. Yeah, in- she'd, she'd seen too much, she'd heard too much, she'd experienced too much change at an early age. And, it and to have that her. taken away from you. She was very close to my dad as well, apparently, when we were, you know, before I came along and I was the first and only son. I think my dad kind of transfixed his attentions from her to me. And of course, her being so much older, she was able to recognise that and resent it as well. So I do always think there was an element of resentment in our sibling years. Yes, and (laughs) which can happen. My sister... My older sister, Maria, was three years older than my next sister. Mm. And she told her to drink. She said, it's dandelion and burdock. You drink that. And it was shoe polish. Oh, my God. And dad had to rush her down to, you know, and my older sister, because she was... So you do hear a lot of stories. Kids do vile things Terrible to things because they're, they're very jealous, aren't they? That, my elder sister, I remember, once said to me when I was about seven, she had a lava lamp, another 70s thing, you know. It's like, oh, my God, lava lamps, more and, um Mindy. <laughs> and I really wanted it, as you do when you're seven, you know. I wanted that and a squirmel. Remember squirmels? No. They were like little fluffy things on a string that you ran through your fingers. Oh, like yes, little... <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I got the squirmel, but I didn't get, the, didn't get the lava lamp. So she said to me, if you eat this whole jar, and it was a massive jar of pickled onions, mm. you can have anything you want in my bedroom. <laughs> And me being a sucker I was, <laughs> ate the whole jar of pickled onions. And then she said, you're not having the lava lamp. <laughs> so I never got the lava lamp and I was violently sick. Um, but I, re- I remember my mum going, it serves you bloody right, you silly bugger. <laughs> you realised at school you were different. You were being told you were different. I was told I was different. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what sort of 
inroads did you make to finding out what being gay was at that time? Well, at that age, um, in the 70s, there was very little you could really find out or, or know about. I, I would always, and now young people come out so early. I mean, you see kids coming out of school at 13, you know, and they've got the internet to look at. They can find things on the internet. They can, they can become more worldly much younger. In those days, there was nothing. No information. Nothing, no, nothing at all. I didn't, I remember hearing my uncle once say to my nan, it must have come up in conversation about me being a sissy or something. It would often arise. And, um, I remember him saying, oh, there's always been gay people around anyway. I remember in, there was a bar in Warsaw and everyone called it aunties and they'd all be in there with their lipstick on. And that fascinated me. After hearing that, I thought, I wonder where that is. But obviously, at that age, I wasn't allowed to go into the town myself on my own anyway. So I never did find out where auntie's was. No. <laughs> so what did you do to try and find out? I didn't care much about that sort of thing. You know, my sexuality, it, it wasn't prevalent to me at that time. So I didn't do really anything. I was very effeminate as a child. Um, <laughs> there was one incident, um, I think it was years later, obviously, when I was doing drag as a career, it probably uh, paved the way a little bit. I think it was about eight. And my sister, my sister that I got on very well with, decided to dress me up and she dressed me up and told me to go around next door, dress me up as a girl, <laughs> put makeup on and, oh, God knows what, and my mum's little Piece week that she had it was very popular in the seventies as Mrs. Slocum back pieces, and she dressed me up and um, sent me around to the next door neighbour to say I was their cousin from America, <laughs> and I had to do like a voice and everything. Obviously, they knew it was me, you know, because I'd got my nan's brown fur coat on, which. <laughs> <laughs> just thought, but, oh, here's David yeah, in his nan's yeah. fur coat. Why, why, why is he knocking on the door saying that? Um, but that kind of shows the little sort of like world that we lived in, you know, that sort of like little funny kind of kooky, dressy up world. And whenever my mum would go out, I would always put all of her jewellery on. If I was left, which inevitably, because my mum worked so much, I was left with my sisters. And so I got plenty of opportunity to ferret through the jewellery boxes and the shoe boxes and, oh, God, you name it. And I, I became very addicted to dressing up. And obviously that, that sort of was it remained with me. <laughs> yeah, was that something that you did as a secret, though, for, even from your sisters? Not from my sister, not from my young, my Julie. My, it wasn't a secret from her. She loved it. Um. But from everyone else, yes. Oh, yes, they mustn't know. And was that part of it, that you kept it a secret? Well, I knew that there was something funny about me that people responded to badly. And as you get a little bit older, you start to suss out what it is, don't you? And, but I was quite pig-headed. I, was, um, I got quite a forceful personality and... I didn't particularly change it, you know. If it were to call you puff, 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 and I'd get lost, you know. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I didn't even know what it meant, you know. But there was, you know, I was lucky in that I'd got quite a plucky personality and didn't let it drown me or defeat me in any way. It just made me the person that I was, which was a very self-reliant child. So you dress up. Put all the jewellery on. Yeah, that would all go on. And the hair, little hair piece and you name it. 
it was in the seventies. It was very popular for um, people to go to dinners and dances. Remember those? Of course, yes. And my mum and dad used to go to this dinner and dance regularly, and be left. The three of us would be left on our own. It was only for a couple of hours. They'd be home by ten. It was an earlier thing, and. Um, my mum had got some new brown suede shoes, I remember this really clearly, and she'd put them in the porch and it was a very rainy, drizzly night. They'd gone to their dinner and dance and I thought, oh, I'll dress up. So I went and found the fur coat and I put all the jewellery on and I put the little hair piece on, some big sunglasses and a headscarf. I must have looked absolutely ridiculous, like a sort of Ronnie Corbett in drag walking, <laughs> walking around. And um, I put all, all the outfit together and um, my mum's got very small feet. And I think about at the time our feet were probably the same size. <laughs> and I wore her new brown suede court shoes to go a walk around the local neighbourhood. So I went a little walk, you know, had a look what I could see in my sunglasses, very Jackie-o. Mm. <laughs> got home, went to take the shoes off in the porch and realised that obviously suede and water don't go. There was watermarks all over them and they were brand new. <laughs> so I put them neatly back, went in, took the clothes off put my pyjamas on and went to bed, whatever. And the next morning, I remember hearing my mother screaming, who's had my shoes on? And obviously she saw them all wrecked. And she blamed my eldest sister. Oh, <laughs> and no. she was going to, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't been out. She said, oh, well, who else would have done that? Oh, you've been wearing them, you were out walking. Oh, oh. And there was a terrible brouhaha about it. And years and years and years later, because it was always with me that I'd like kept that little secret. Years and years later, I fessed up to my mum that it was me. And she just said, oh, I should have bloody known, really, shouldn't I? <laughs> this was at the height of my drag time, you know. She said, I thought you'd grow out of it, but you grew into it. <laughs> in quite a massive way, yeah, in quite a huge way. And so, well, we end the decade... And it wasn't a great decade politically. Well, it was a miserable decade. It was a miserable decade. And it was a miserable, even for fashion, when you think about it, it was very beige and brown, wasn't it? It was either, it was quite extreme, really, wasn't it? You'd got like the hippie stuff and the platforms and everything. But that was really sort of like a post 60s thing. Yes. The 60s seemed so exciting. 70s to me was a very grey decade, a decade of like, you know, Remember when they turned all the electric off? Yes. We had the three-day weeks yeah. and it was miserable. There were strikes. Yeah. It, it just the, seemed a miserable decade. It was a very miserable time. I think socially, when you think back, though, it was a decade of change, wasn't it? It was massive changes for everyone. All the people who'd known the British Empire were still alive, so they were all a bit resentful of our lesser place in it, the world. And, you know, there was a, that extreme nationalism I suppose you'd call it working class nationalism and also things were changing sort of in every every aspect of life weren't they people's the whole gender roles everything but it was I don't remember it as being a particularly happy I remember grimy decade you know the Queen's Silver Jubilee in 1977 I went remember standing outside Warsaw Town Hall with my little flag and the Queen driving past and thinking, oh, how lovely, look at that lovely car, look at a lovely hat. And then you'd look around and it was like working class. It was very grey, wasn't grey, it? Grey, yes. grimy bonnets, you know. That's and I what think, I, I think of the 70s as being, there was so much revolution in the 60s and it seemed to be so colourful. Yeah. And yeah. so much you th thought things are really going to change now because obviously you've got to think back 
people who'd lived through war and not having much money. And then the 60s turned up and, and there was so much possibility. Yeah, yeah. And then the 70s seemed to... It dipped, didn't it? Yeah. No jobs, no money, no electric. <laughs> and, and the gender roles did change slightly. Women were going out to work. It started to change. I think it was a, a decade of change. And people are always frightened of change, aren't they? So I think whenever there's um, change, there's fear. And fear generates all sorts of things, reactionism. At the end of the 70s and the sort of winter of discontent, you know, you were just a teenager. Mm, I was a teenager by then. So what was the end of that decade like for you just as you were going into your teenage years? I was aware that things had got slightly better for us because my mum had got a little job that was comfortable and also involved us living on site. She was a warden for old people and you got a house. so. And all the bills and everything were paid. So there was less tension about money, um, but more tension, the continued tensions and arguments about my dad and his drinking and crazy behaviour. And I did love my dad immensely, by the way. I know I've said a lot about his, um, you know, drinking and the rows and everything, but my dad was an amazing father in many other ways. He was a, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person. And only through you know, ageing, I suppose, I can look back now and understand it and, and see that he was a wonderful person at the time. Not so much, but... <laughs> what sort of things did you share with him? Oh, my dad did everything for me. He was... I, he never, ever smacked me, ever. I don't ever remember my dad shouting at me for being naughty. He would always hide me from my mom. My mom was the one that smacked us. <laughs> um, he was like... He was the good guy, good cop, bad cop. You know, my dad was definitely a good cop. You could get, my dad would do anything for you. He said, Dad, can I have 50p for some chocolate and give you a pound if he'd got it, you know? He was a very giving, giving, kind person. And I was obsessed with animals, as I say, with a born free story. So he would take me to zoos and teach me all, you know, things about nature. And I don't, you know, it wasn't all bad, the 70s childhood. It was, there was moments long moments where it was wonderful, you know. He was a great person. Well, it all changed in the 80s. We've got the Prince's Trust. Yeah. Boy George. Yeah. And the Gay Times. Ah, the Gay Times, yeah. So we shall discuss that on the next episode. Gay Times for all in the next episode. Right, George, I've created a soundtrack of the 70s and my first track is Mari's Making Eyes at Me by Lena Zavaroni. <laughs> Starman, David Bowie is number two and Brass in Pocket by The Pretenders is number three. So they're three of my like top songs that I remember and love from the 70s. If you had to pick one to go on a desert island and you had to listen to it all afternoon, which one of those three would it be? What was the last one again? The last one was... Uh, brass in, brass in oh, yeah, it would pretenders. be Pretenders, no question. Great song. You know, it's... Uh, although they're all, they're all kind of iconic. You know, I remember Lena Zavaroni. I used to run home from school to watch... You know, watch uh, was it Junior Showtime? Opportunity Knocks. Opportunity Knocks. I remember all those programmes when I was a kid. You know, I used to love watching those uh, things with Pauline Quirkin and, you know, Lena Zavaroni. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who's the other little one? Bonnie... Um, Bonnie Langford. Bonnie Langford. To run back from school 
to watch She's in EastEnders now, she A lot of them started at half past three, which is when school was out. So if you could just... <laughs> sometimes you had a teacher that would let you out early. You'd get on that bus and go and <laughs> those shows. So, yeah, I'm not one of these people. So I look back and um, Mama is making eyes on me. I remember seeing her perform that. And so that's... But I don't know if I'd be able to listen to that on a desert island over and over. No, and the second not. one was What was the second one? Starman, David Bowie. That could be a good one. Although I know I've recorded that. So maybe, You've done that yourself, though, yeah, haven't you? I think the last one, Rousing Pocket, because it's just, it's a, it's a really great pop song. It's a great pop song that's completely cool. You know, it it's is. like one of those and she's songs. she's fantastic as well, isn't she? She's amazing. Because I went to see her a couple of years ago in concert and she was berating the audience for filming her. I did think she kind of exerted a lot of unnecessary energy on screaming at the audience. <laughs> I have to say, I loved it. I was like, Chrissy Hines. Oh, she's I've got an axe to grind, Chrissy Hines. (laughs) Okay, well, thanks, George. Next week, we're going to be looking at the soundtrack for the 80s. This podcast was produced and edited by Jackie O'Malley. Post-production is by Carl Svensson at Tadar Media Limited. Music by George O'Dowd and Luke Begley. Produced by Kevin Frost. Original artwork by David Hodge. Podcast artwork designed by Lee Dyer. This has been David Hodge, the boy who sat by the window. The boy who sat by the window With colourful thoughts flying through his head Some of the story, but it's not over yet. <laughs>